Stolen U-Haul driver charged in the death of woman. Toronto police crashed a lecture about Palestine at York University. Protests across Canada blocked access to arms manufacturers. Corruption in COVID test procurement. Superior Court upholds Quebec's Bill 21. Brian Mulroney kicks the bucket. Drought in Zambia declared a national emergency. And Israel elects far-right politicians in municipal elections. Good morning. It's Friday, March 1st. It's March. Oh, my God. I'm Nora. Here are your headlines. We start this morning with an update on the story of the U-Haul driver in Edmonton who killed Cassandra Gartner earlier this week. The driver, Peter Richard Ashby, has been charged in her hit and run. The RCMP was quote-unquote pleased to announce the arrest. The article from Nicholas Frew at CBC News is sole sourced from the police and so, of course, does not examine how police created the conditions for Gartner's death by throwing a spike belt, which she hit. It mentions the order of events, but does not question how unsafe throwing the spike belt was or how had the police not chased the man through town, Gartner would have still been alive. Next, news again from York University, but this time it's not related to the QP3903 strike. The university issued a letter that informed the university community that Toronto police, quote, interrupted a lecture by Dr. Mohanad Ayash, unquote. The letter is signed by President Rhonda Lenton and Provost Lisa Phillips and explains that Ayash is a, quote, distinguished Palestinian scholar, unquote, who had been invited to talk about his research. This happened about two weeks ago, and back then, writing in the breach, Ayash said that there were about 20 people present in the room with another 40 online, and the police said that the university had called them to check on the event. A picture of the police accompanies this image. Ayash is a professor at Mount Royal University, and the letter doesn't explain how his lecture was targeted by Toronto police, just that his scholarly lecture was quote-unquote interrupted. The university said that they didn't know that Toronto police were on campus. They did not call Toronto police, nor ask Toronto police to attend Ayash's lecture. York followed up with the police to figure out how the heck this happened, and they reconfirmed that Toronto police had not been contacted by anyone in the York community to attend the lecture. They didn't tell the admin that they'd be attending, and that the police claimed without any evidence that York saw that they were acting on a security threat. The letter from the admin concludes with this, quote, while any intrusion into academic space and discourse is concerning, this particular incident involving a Palestinian scholar speaking on Palestinian rights and in the midst of the crisis in Israel and Palestine has exacerbated feelings of alienation and marginalization already undermining York's academic community. We sincerely regret the imposition on Dr. Ayash and lecture attendees and the consequent erosion of trust, particularly at this troubled and troubling time, unquote. Next, this past week, you may have seen images all over social media of people blocking arms factories in towns across the country. Well, there was indeed a national coordinated campaign to organize these blockades. Reporting for The Maple, Nur Dogan and Alex Kosh say that the protests happened in Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver, Quebec City, Peterborough, Kitchener-Waterloo and Victoria. Dogan reported from Toronto, where they blocked access for the morning shift at the TTM Technologies facility. 
The groups involved in organizing them were World Beyond War, Labor for Palestine, Jews Say No to Genocide, the Palestinian Youth Movement, and unions. Simon Black from Labor Against the Arms Trade said this, quote, It is a very clear message to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government that if you are not going to impose the arms embargo, then we will impose an arms embargo down on the ground, and we will be shutting down factories until the government actually listens to our demands and complies with Canadian export law. Canada should not export any arms to a country that stands accused of genocide or where there's a substantive risk of complicity in war crimes or international crimes against humanity, unquote. TTM was chosen because they make circuit board components in Canada that are then sent to two Israeli arm companies, Elbit Systems and Artem Technologies Limited. Reminder that the Maple has uncovered that at least $28 million in arms made in Canada have been sold to Israel since October 7th, and that news has not been reported by mainstream outlets. In Calgary, protests picked the factory of RTX, which you might know as Raytheon. It's an American weapons manufacturer that sells missiles that the F-16 and F-35 fighter jets use. Hikvision, Thale, Colt Canada, and Lockheed Martin were all also targeted. Wait, Hikvision? <laughs> okay. Next to news about COVID tests, Patty Sontag from Global News is reporting that two of the biggest pandemic contracts were given to companies called BTNX and Switch Health. BTNX got $2 billion and Switch got $365 million. Global got documents that showed that even though BTNX quoted tests at a rate that was $0.85 higher than devices made in Canada, the federal government chose BTNX to procure 404 million tests. Switch Health had a much higher markup for their Korean-made tests, $6.45 to $10 per kit more than compared to the cheapest Canadian product, and they received an order for 60 million tests. Now, I want to pause and mention that, Sandy, if you're listening to this episode today, remember when you said that you had questions about Switch Health and how they managed to get so many government contracts? I feel like Sandy said this in some 2020 episode at some point. Well, here is a little bit of information related to that. Switch Health was given $602 million in federal contracts for lab tests for international travelers. That company made almost $1 billion in 2021. In total, Global estimates that going with the more expensive kits cost at least $56 million more dollars. Sontag also talked to Sank Odskan from Artron Laboratories, who was given federal money to scale up their operations and produce rapid tests, but they couldn't unload their tests with the amount of free tests that were already on the market. Now, this isn't the first scandal related to the tests. Global also uncovered in December that BTNX tests, the green box tests that we all had pretty much, was missing data from its Health Canada application that made it sound like the test was more able to test for COVID than it actually was able to. BTNX denies this, and Switch Health denies Global's numbers about the markups related to the tests. This is a really long investigation, so there's a lot more to it. I strongly encourage you to check it out if you are interested in COVID procurement. Now, quickly to Quebec. The Quebec Court of Appeal ruled that Bill 21, Quebec's religious symbols ban, is constitutional, and the decision was unanimous. Bill 21 bans people who have the coercive authority of the state from wearing religious symbols. That means that the ban only includes cops, crown prosecutors, judges, some agents who carry guns in like forest management, but also teachers. The judges also struck down a lower court exemption for English schools, which had been put in place based on the principle of bilingualism, which isn't something that the notwithstanding clause can opt out of. 
But the judges did find that part of the law that placed a ban on face coverings for members of the National Assembly was unconstitutional. Next, Brian Mulroney has died. Mulroney was best known for having brought neoliberalism to Canada, bringing business leaders into the machinery of Canadian government in a way that had never really worked like that before in Canada's history and laid the framework for the neoliberal order to rise as Canada's current status quo. We're going to be inundated with tributes to the man who called in the military to protect a golf course from the rightful stewards, the Mohawks of Kanesatage. They'll say that he was the first environmentalist. And yeah, if only Mulroney's fight against acid rain could have impacted the party to actually currently today be better on climate change. And they'll say he was a statesman, which of course he was by definition. Mulroney was a politician from a different era of politics. From a historic victory in 1984 to a historic defeat, he fundamentally transformed Canada for the worst. That is, if you're talking about Canada for average people. If not, well, he certainly started bending this country's policies to the profit seekers and politicians have continued that legacy. Next, two international pieces of news for you. First to Zambia, where drought is devastating the country's agriculture. There has been no rain for five weeks at a time at some points in the past few months. Much of Zambia is powered by hydro, meaning droughts are also threatening the electricity supply. As a result, Al Jazeera reports that Zambia's government has declared a national disaster. More than one million households have been impacted by the drought, and almost half of all crops have been destroyed. And finally, Israelis headed to the polls this past week amid their ongoing genocide for municipal elections and far right and ultra orthodox Zionist parties made quote unquote significant gains, reports Al Jazeera. The far right in Jerusalem won big, winning a majority of municipal seats. The centrist mayor, Moisha Leon, was re-elected too. 362,000 Palestinians live in Jerusalem. The article quotes Daniel Seidman, who's a political analyst and lawyer, and said this, quote, The municipal results are highly significant in disclosing ongoing trends. Indeed, the ultra-Orthodox or extreme right wing won a majority, but they pretty much ran things in Jerusalem already, unquote. In Tel Aviv, things were much better. Liberals had a good showing. Voter turnout wasn't great, though, and many secular and left-wing Israelis didn't vote at all, said the journalist Oren Ziv. Many of Israel's left-wing communities are in the communal villages in the south where Hamas attacked. And so Ziv explained that, quote, more left-wing movements were still in shock, unquote, and therefore didn't vote. This leaves villages where far-right leadership were elected and Jerusalem as powder kegs, said Seidman and Khaled Zabarka, a Palestinian lawyer and human rights activist. Those are your headlines for Friday, March 1st. I'm Nora. Can you believe it's March? Go pay your rent. Go pay your bills. Do that kind of thing. If you've got to do it, don't don't let it don't let it wait. Just just do it. But it's March. And that means that we are 20 days from spring. Although, you know, climate change means that spring is probably going to happen tomorrow if it's not already in your neck of the woods. You're listening to this podcast at sandynor.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you have a wonderful March 1st, a wonderful Friday and a wonderful weekend. March break starts for us next week. So I'm going to talk to you on the other side, right in the thick of March break. <laughs>